Hello and welcome back to another edition of Podcast from the Edge with me, Peter Bruce. This podcast really is from the edge as I'll be talking to one of the finest journalists and human beings it's been my privilege to know. You may know her too because the London Sunday Times chief foreign correspondent, Christina Lamb, lived in Johannesburg for a while covering South Africa's transition to democracy. But as I talk to Christina now, she's in Afghanistan in Kabul, recently abandoned by Western forces that invaded it after 9-11, and almost in a flash retaken completely by the ultra-fundamentalist Muslim Taliban last month. I could spend hours introducing Christina. She's won a mountain of awards for her journalism, received an OBE from the Queen, and has written some serious and important books along the way. To copy straight from her Wikipedia profile, which is cheating, I know, but it's short and well edited. Christina has been based in Islamabad and Rio de Janeiro for the Financial Times, Johannesburg, Washington, D.C. for the Sunday Times. She covered wars from just about everywhere, Iraq, Libya, Angola, Syria. She pays particular attention to issues such as uh, women in war, girls abducted by Boko Haram, the Yazidi sex slaves in Iraq, the plight of Afghan women. She co-wrote I'm Malala with the teenage education activist Malala Yousafzai, shot by the Taliban when she was just 15 for daring to fight for the education of women, and more recently, uh, Our Bodies, Their Battlefield, What War Does to Women, which I read, which is really, really good. I first met Christina way back around 1983, I think, when she suddenly appeared at the foreign desk of the Financial Times, where I worked as a junior news editor. Bright and quick, I think we bored her almost instantly. If I remember, it was an assignment to the World Trade page. It was the last straw. And I clearly remember telling us she was leaving and going to Pakistan. But we don't have a bureau in Pakistan, we all cried. She said, that's fine. I'll start one for you. She did that and more. And they just don't make them like Christina Lamb anymore. She's brave, unassuming, immensely kind, and the journalist we all wish we had been. And it's a pleasure to talk to her now. Christina, you're in Kabul, or Kabul, a place you probably know like the back of your hand. Has it changed overnight? First of all, Peter, thank you for that election. Um, And you probably added a few years to my age, because I didn't start until 87 or 88. (laughs) And um, and actually, that was when I first came to Kabul as well. Um, um, So it's actually been 33 years that I've been coming here, and I have never seen it quite like it is now, I have to say. But you were there before, you you would have been there before the US invasion, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I've come back and forth over the years. The first time I came here, it was under Soviet occupation. That's right. So that was pretty grim. Um, then I came when they, after the Russians had left in 89, um, so the Afghan Mujahideens started all fighting each other, which was also really grim. Uh, then the Taliban took over, which was also very grim. Um, then I came in 2001 after 9-11 when US-led troops had ousted the Taliban. 
And I have to say that that felt like a kind of happy ending. I mean, it felt as though people were very happy, at least in Kabul, to see the back of the Taliban and all the things that had been banned, like girls going to school and women working and women wearing lipstick and nail um, varnish and people listening to music or watching TV and films, all those things that had been banned for those years that been, were allowed again. So suddenly it seems a, a much more joyful place. But typically, as everyone's leaving Kabul, you go back. What do you, what do you find? What's it like out on the streets? So now it's very strange. As I said, I've never seen it quite like this because I drove here last week from Pakistan and as you come across the border, the first thing you see is the white Taliban flag, which has replaced the old red, green and black one. Um, and then on the journey, you just don't see women and driving. That's not so unusual in sort of rural areas, but driving into Kabul, um, at evening when there's typically a lot of people sort of out shopping and wandering around, it was really noticeable. There were, were quite a few people out and about, but I saw hardly any women at all, just um, literally two pairs of women, both uh, all fully covered in, in black chador and just sort of hurrying along as though they were sort of anxious not to be there, which is so different from last time I was here, which was about 18 months ago. And then you would see lots of young women um, sort of fashionably dressed and out and about um, school so it's a, so it's, it's, uh, it's, old, it's, older women. So it's, it's, a blanket, it's a blanket change just overnight. Yeah, yes. And the other thing is, is that there are Taliban everywhere. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, um, just every checkpoint, of course, but also sort of wandering around, going in the cafes, um, wandering on the streets, going shopping on the back of vehicles and pickups. Um, and, and many of them, have, I mean, they're very obvious because they tend many of them have long hair and eye makeup and uh or they're wearing sort of Kandahari turbans and uh all of them carrying AK forty sevens or or machine guns that they've um purloined from what they from the Americans or what was left behind. Um Presumably they're much better armed now than when they started this, where the Americans would have left as is typical when you leave anywhere in a hurry, quite a lot of equipment behind. Yeah, I mean, they did destroy quite a lot. And in fact, today it went to a, a Taliban press conference, which was a first for me. Uh, and the Taliban spokesperson was complaining that the Americans did lots of damage at the airport when they left because they destroyed a lot of things. And he said they also destroyed the radar system. So planes can only land by by visuals, um, which is uh, dodgy. Yeah. So, yeah, a lot of these weapons were, were captured when they were fighting or taking places around the country. They didn't, yeah, they didn't have to fight that much in the, in the final stages. Yeah. Christina, what, um, uh, what, are, what are people telling you? Are you able to speak to ordinary Afghanis? Are they frightened? Are they angry with the West for leaving them the way they did, for the chaos of it all? So there's a huge range of 
as people. I mean, some people, you know, are happy because they, it's much more peaceful because the people who were carrying out the suicide bombings and attacks for the most part were the Taliban and now they're running the place. But that, that stopped. Um, but, uh, lots of people I know have fled or are in hiding because they tend to be, um, women, more educated people, people that are working in jobs trying to make a difference. So anything. So I, I have friends here who are hiding at the moment who, for example, one of them is a rapper. Another is uh, a midwife who was a midwife at a maternity hospital, which was attacked last year and um, uh, mothers and babies were, were gone down. Um, a female judge, various female MPs, all of these people um, represent something that is against what the Taliban stand for. Yeah. And so they feel that they're, they're very vulnerable. Um, so it's hard to meet those people. I speak to them on the phone. Some of them are, are literally moving house every two or three days because they don't even trust you know, people around them. What 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 about what's your opinion? I mean, of what has happened, the departure, the almost instant collapse of the Afghan government, a trillion dollars later, or however much money the Americans spent, was it a cowardly thing? Was it inevitable? I mean, you you have written a fantastic book a few years ago called Farewell Kabul, which in a way was very prescient. You know, it does it had to end surely. Well, the thing is, it, I mean, they spent two trillion dollars here actually. Um, um, I, nobody ever expected when foreign troops came in here in 2001 that they would still be here 20 years later. So, you know, at some point they did have to go, but it was the way it was done. It was so precipitous and it, you know, the Afghan forces had got used to having American air power and, um, logistics and various enablers behind them. And all of a sudden, you know, almost overnight that was taken away from them without, you know, a lot of preparation. So they basically didn't fight. But I think, you know, the other problem was the Afghan government itself was not popular. It was regarded as corrupt. A lot of people said to me in the past that the biggest problem in their life was the Afghan government, that uh, they were having to pay bribes to, to get anything done, to get a driving license, to get a case. Lots of people have court cases because um, all these years of war that people have been displaced and their properties have been taken over by other people. lots of disputes like that. Um, and so it was really frustrating for them trying to get anything done. So that was always, a, I mean, years ago, I wrote a piece called Mission Impossible because it felt like NATO troops were fighting for a, a government that people didn't want. And that's really a difficult thing to, um, to do. So whereas the Taliban had a much stronger motivation, which was that, well, first that this is our country, but also that Afghanistan has never been, um, colonized or has always kind of pushed out any invaders, whether it was the Anglo-Afghan wars in the 19th century when, um, when the British tried to, to come in then or the Russians in the 1980s and then now the Americans. So they feel, you know, they've endlessly defeated superpowers. 
I hear sort of senior U.S. officials, possibly even the Secretary of State, suggesting that people who still want to leave should sort of, quote, head for the border, unquote. How, how insane is that? Is that even possible? And what border do you go to if you want to get out? If your friends are moving house to house, that's nowhere to live. I mean, how will they, how will they leave? No. Um, well, there's a long border with Pakistan. There's a 1,600-mile border. But there's, I think, six official crossings now. It used to be very porous, but the Pakistanis have built a fence. But the, the border crossings are closed. They were closed because of COVID originally. Um, and they're still closed. Um, the Pakistan is only allowing through people with like medical emergencies because a lot of people in southern Afghanistan go to Pakistan for medical treatment. So, uh, I came through the main crossing point, Talkham, and, and there weren't that many people waiting there because people know it's closed. Another crossing point, um, further to the west called Spimboldang Chaman near Kandahar, um, has had, um, people, a, a lot of people kind of pushing their way through. But to be honest, I mean, that's the thing people are fearful of that apart from being worried about how the, the Taliban are going to act because of the brutality of the past and whether they're still going to do the same things. Also, this country now has no access to foreign aid. Its government assets, more than $9 billion, are frozen. Uh, so it has no money. So a country that already was desperately poor, many, many people living on the edge, now has no access to to money. Um, and so it's very likely that there's going to be an economic crisis and a big humanitarian crisis in that case you'll see a lot more refugees fleeing to the borders, which for different reasons than the ones we've seen um, trying to escape by plane in the last few weeks. How, how badly has it been hit by the epidemic or the pandemic? It's interesting. We were just, uh, us journalists here were talking about that last night because, I mean, you feel like you're living in a place where COVID isn't going on because there's no... Nobody takes any notice of it. There's no social distancing. There's no masks. There's nothing. People just, you know, act as normal. And that isn't because the, the pandemic hasn't hit here. It has hit here very badly. And, uh, it has got a lot of cases. But I suppose when, you know, you're dealing with 40 years of war and then the Taliban take over that maybe COVID sort of becomes lower down the list of people. But you wouldn't want to guess it here because there's very few, there's very poor medical facilities, particularly now that the um, yeah. aid agencies have left. Christina, just explain the geopolitics of it all. Where, where is Pakistan's interest? Why is, why would Pakistan celebrate or support the Taliban taking back the country? So Pakistan has been involved with this for a very long time because when um, when I first started covering this and went to live in Peshawar in Pakistan near the border with Afghanistan, at that point was when the Russians had occupied Afghanistan and it was really the last battle of the, the Cold War. So the West, the US, CIA, EMI6 for the UK, um, Saudis, various other countries were giving a lot of money to the Afghan Mujahideen to fight the, the Russians. Um, 
And all of that money was given through Pakistan because it was a covert war. And so Pakistan's military intelligence, ISI, ran the whole thing. Um, and so we got to know all of the different Afghan groups very well, had its favorites, trained them, worked with them. Then when the Soviets had gone and it all fell apart and they all started fighting each other, that's when the Taliban emerged as a group that were trying supposedly to bring law and order to Afghanistan. Um, and they were very much supported, some would say created, by Pakistan's ISI. Um, and so there have been these relations ever since. And partly it's because of um, Pakistan's geography. So Pakistan um, has India on its uh, eastern border, which is its great enemy. It's fought three wars against. It's still fighting against. Um, of course, India dwarfs Pakistan in terms of its um, military capability and uh, population. And so Pakistan saw Afghanistan um, on its western border as a way of secure, helping secure itself. It had its uh, policy, which um, goes great depth, but it was called strategic depth, which, so it was kind of using Afghanistan also as a buffer against India. Um, so the idea that Pakistan could then control Afghanistan um, was a very, very much part of the sort of military strategy. But Pakistan's in a weird situation. I was there before I came here. And there's certainly some delights that they they feel like they've defeated the Americans that uh, and they were the ones all along saying you can't win this war militarily, militarily and they've been proved right. But there's also a certain amount of fear about what's going to happen because there is this fear there could be a massive humanitarian crisis here and a lot more refugees would go to Pakistan, which already has three million Afghan refugees from the past. Also, you know, that there could be militants now coming that Afghanistan will be seen by jihadists all over the world as the place to be because the Taliban won, defeated the West, and so, you know, it's a place that they could come yeah. back to and, um, and then launch attacks from, which of course is also, uh, very alarming yeah. for, for Pakistan. And lastly, Pakistan has its own Taliban called the TTP Taliban of Pakistan, which has launched lots of attacks in Pakistan in the past. And they, many of them were in jails in Afghanistan. And the Taliban have released all these people. So, um, <laughs> hundreds of them apparently have gone. So it's, it's very complicated. I oh, know. You reap, um, you reap what you sow. Is that, was there, in, did the, did, yes, the, did exactly. the West succeed in any sense in the 20 years that they were there? I mean, this is an awful thing. You come in now and feel like, well, what was that 20 years about? Yes, lots of, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people have been educated. Um, this is a very young population. 70% of Afghans are under 30. So they've pretty much only known that period. So they've got used to having, you know, certain rights, having, con you know, lots of connection with the rest of the world. Uh, they want things which young people anywhere want. Um, and now all of a sudden that's been taken away. So it's almost like you kind of gave people the possibility to dream of something and then you snatched it away from them. Um, so we were even talking, you know, it would have been better never to have come. But yeah. 
Um, when I talk to young Afghans here, they don't, I mean, they don't say that. They feel, you know, it's better that they had that opportunity, but they don't want to lose it all now. Yeah. Um, one person I spoke to last week, he said to me, it's as if, uh, you know, a TV screen, when it suddenly goes blank, that's how it feels. Do the Taliban have any redeeming features? Well, they don't come from nowhere. Obviously, mm. they wouldn't have been able to take over the country if they didn't have, you know, roots mm. and a certain amount of popularity. And yeah. in rural Afghanistan, which is very conservative, a lot of people agree with with them. A lot of people like that this is now Afghanistan asserting its own independence that they've kicked out the foreigners, and uh, and the Taliban have been quite clever in painting out, there were a lot of murals painted on the glass, the concrete glass walls in Kabul, which were everywhere to protect against suicide bombers. And they've been painting out all of those murals, painting them white and then painting slogans on them, all of which are, you know, congratulations on removing the oppressors or ending imperialism and these kind of slogans. So, so, you know, they have... uh, support from people who agree with that um, and also the fact that you know there's no doubt at the moment their country's more peaceful it's had 40 years of war suddenly that's all stopped I mean today the Taliban are claiming that the last bit of Afghanistan which was not under their control the Panjshir Valley has now um, been taken and so all of that fighting has ended so you know, for people who have suffered so greatly in war, that's a relief. That, and has, you know, the great fear was that there'd be a great raping and pillaging uh, as they came in. Has the evidence of, real evidence of that? I mean, we, there's news, been TV pictures of protests by women being broken up, um, not very, you know, carefully. Yeah, I mean, I think, the leadership, the political leadership, is trying really hard to make sure everyone behaves. Um, it's kind of interesting because they've been very welcoming to foreign journalists, surprisingly to us. Keep asking us, because I've had several meetings with officials today, they keep asking, is everyone behaving with you? Do you feel safe? Uh, they've given us all letters to carry around. If anybody causes any trouble, we show them this letter from the leadership. Um, so they're clearly, you know, very aware of public relations. Yes. It's very different than last time around. Yeah. Um, now, whether this is genuine, whether this means that they've really changed, or whether it's just because they know that they need the international engagement and aid and all of those things, they got to fight there. It's difficult to know. Like, we will only know that over over time. Yeah. But um, these. Women's protests. Now, I was very surprised on Friday. I went out and there was a group of women protesting. She's incredibly brave and about 20, um, women. And each day since there's been a group, I saw one again today. On Saturday, the group was broken up quite, um, violently and, um, um the Taliban breaking it up with sort of cursing and then the journalists. Yeah. Um, but today, the Taliban spokesperson sort of criticised those people and said that they were just people from checkpoints and they'd be um, disciplined. Yeah. No, he didn't also, at the same time, he wasn't saying that 
he's all women's protest. He was, he was saying that they want to keep, keep discipline. Yeah. Wow. Children who haven't had much of a life um, in in what passed for Afghan democracy will now grow up again under the Taliban after a generation before them uh, grew up under a more liberal regime. Will children be respected? I think it's very difficult to be optimistic about the future of Afghanistan at the moment for anyone because you can see lots of ways this could go horribly wrong. Um, I think that, I mean, children at the moment are able to go to school, primary school children. To me, the people who are most affected in a way at the moment are young people, teenage, you know, late teens or in their 20s who are just sort of planning their lives to starting out and suddenly everything they thought they could do suddenly has been snatched away from them. Um, and so, it, you know, that's really difficult and that's why so many people were, were trying to leave. The Taliban keeps saying that people shouldn't leave, that they're safe here and that they want the skills of these people for the future. But of course, um, they've been very ambivalent about women. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about, about women and generally your coverage and writings about women or your, your friendship with Benazir Bhutto is well documented, but um, your coverage of the sort of hell that uh, women go through in war is quite unique to you, you know, and, and obviously very disturbing. And you have the girls taken in Nigeria by Boko Haram, the Yazidi sex slaves in, by, taken by ISIS in Iraq. No doubt, you know, people fleeing Burma have had the same, and one worries about the same beginning now to happen in Afghanistan. And you, you, you wrote um, uh, a very, very good book recently. Our, my f- favorite of yours has been Our Bodies, Their Battlefield, What War Does to Women. Why, I mean, it's, it's a kind of stupid question, I suppose, but why do soldiers rape women? Is it getting worse in war or, or, or has it always been like that? Well, I, I wrote that book because I was so disturbed by what I was seeing on the ground. It seemed to me that in the last few years I was... Of course, there's always been rape in war, but I was seeing much more um, of it being used as a, a weapon against um, a weapon of war. And I couldn't really understand. It didn't make sense to me why it should be happening so much more now. And also, it wasn't that people didn't know it was happening. So the Yazidis, for example, who were taken by ISIS in Iraq and kept as sex slaves, or the, as you mentioned, the, the girls, like the Chibok girls in Nigeria, but actually tens of thousands of girls taken by Boko Haram. Um, and again, all around the same time, for the uh, women whose villages were um, moved into by Burmese military and Buddhist militia in uh, Myanmar. Um, again, um, massive amount of gang rape in that case of women being tied to banana trees and raped often in front of their children and all of these cases 
it's I mean it's really difficult for people to talk about these things but actually the, the women and girls did speak out really courageously so no one could say that they didn't know what was happening and yet nothing was done about it and that's the thing I found and find incredibly frustrating is that you know this is a war crime and yet um, nobody seems to want to do anything about it. People are not brought to justice. Uh, hardly anybody has been brought to justice. And it keeps going on. I was going to ask you that it is a war crime. Is that right? It is a war crime, yes. Yeah, officially a war crime. Um, and there were, um, you know, the first time a lot of people became aware of this on a big scale was in the 90s when it was used a lot in, in Bosnia. and There were rape camps. And, um, and so there was uh, international tribunals set up afterwards and people were able to justice but the numbers are very few um, and the same with Rwanda where it, it, uh, there was a huge amount of rape genocide again um, very few people have been brought to justice so um, and that that's the real problem that people are doing this with impunity and it feels like the international community doesn't really put up seriousness on that. Um, it's yeah. hard to know why. Um, in some of these cases, they didn't even want to prosecute people or go after the rape cases because they thought it might damage other cases of torture and killing. Um, there does seem to be a sense among some people that that that's worse than, than the rape. But for the women who've gone through these things, almost all the women I interviewed said that they would rather have been killed than live with what they'd gone through. So it shouldn't be regarded as less serious. You know, in the end, you, you're in there and you, what you can't see, you probably already know, but what can the rest of humanity do while this goes on around it? It's appalling. That's a good question. I mean... Well, the, the, the war rate, for example, is, you know, awareness that people just don't know. I didn't know until they started, even though I was reporting on these things, until I started getting into it, just how widespread it is. It's happening in so many countries around the world. Um, and also just how little it's prosecuted. I mean, the International Criminal Court, which was set up almost 20 years ago, has actually only brought one person to justice for... Um, use of sexual violence in, in conflict and that's just ridiculous so um, it needs to be taken much more seriously but I think one of the problems is like when wars end um, the negotiations have tended to be very male dominated uh, there isn't a single peace process for example going on around the world at the moment that has that is led by a woman um don't even have any women involved. The Afghan, of course, that got nowhere in the end. But no. had only four women, and they really had to fight and also took great risks to be, to be involved. So, if I mean, this should be a central thing at the end of a war when discussion of, of what to do and, and what issues need to be. Um, dealt with and it just it doesn't even feature in most of the each discussions so that's a huge problem there's some very powerful women if I'm not mistaken on the International Criminal Court one perhaps should apply pressure in the right places but that's for another time 
Christina, it's wonderful to talking to you now as it would be over a beer in a pub uh, in London. Thank you so much for your time. Please, please stay safe. And my job is to find that pub, by the way. In the meantime, I'll continue reading you uh, in the Sunday Times. And to you listeners, thanks very much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed that. I'll be away for a week, but I'll be back before you know it with another interesting guest on Podcasts from the Edge. Bye-bye.